Well, thank you, Pastor. I, it's a privilege for me to be able to help and support our pastor as he's fulfilling some seminary requirements. Uh, I know what it's like. We need to pray for our pastor because I know what it's like to try to pastor full-time and be working on a seminary degree. It demands of a curriculum of a seminary degree. I did that for eight years when I worked on my doctorate. Uh, so we need to pray for our pastor and trying to meet the demands of ministry and the demands of this degree. We need to remember, too, he's not getting this degree because he needs another degree. He's getting a degree and the training of it so that he can be a better pastor, a better preacher to you, the people of this church. So we need to pray for our pastor and the demands that are upon him. Uh, and it's always great privilege for me to preach the word of God. I was, as we were singing, I was sitting there thanking God once again for letting me be a preacher and teacher of his word. Uh, now in my 49th year, uh, I never have gotten over the fact that God would allow me to be a preacher and teacher of his word. Uh, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, where he says he's not fit to be a preacher of God's word. I feel the same way. I, why would God ever allow me to do something that is so important? Uh, and I had to have the testimony as Paul did, I am what I am by the grace of God. But it's a great privilege for me to teach and preach God's word to you. I want to talk to you today about a subject that is, will be the key to the success of this ministry. It's the key to the success of any ministry. And that is being a friend to sinners, developing Christ's heart for people. Doesn't matter what programs you have. Doesn't matter what kind of training you have. If you don't learn like Jesus to be a friend of sinners and develop his heart for people, you will not be successful in ministry. So this is a very important message. I want to encourage you to listen carefully to what I share with you today. And uh, I want to encourage you to also take your notes this outline from the uh, bulletin and follow along as we look at God's word today. Uh, I want to just look at one example today of this. There are a number of examples I could share with you, but I simply don't have the time. So one example, and so I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. 
And I want to read verses 1 through 17. Mark 2, 1 through 17. Now, this is a story that you may be familiar with when this paralyzed man was brought to Jesus one day. And what happened? Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days, Capernaum was his headquarters, his hometown. And when he had come back to Capernaum for several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And so many gathered. They heard he was home, so they came to his house. Uh, and many had gathered, and there was no longer any room, not even near the door. And he was speaking a word to them. So he was teaching God's word to them. And they came bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, that is the four men with a paralytic, they removed the roof above. And when they had dug the opening, they let uh, down the pallet so that the paralytic was lying and, uh, and seeing their faith, what faith? The faith of the four men. Seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, they brought the guy to be healed, but he saw something else. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. And some of the scribes, some of the scribes were there, the religious leaders there, reasoning in their heart. So they were thinking in their heart. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a true statement. Only God can forgive sin. But he was God in human flesh. Immediately, Jesus aware uh, in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? Once again, showing his deity. Only God knows what people are thinking. Uh, why are you reasoning in your heart? These things in your heart. Now listen to this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? I'll ask you saying, which is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can just say that. But if you say get up, pick up your pallet and walk. You got to prove that. People have got to see it. And so he says in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately, it's no long-term healing, Immediately, he picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed. We're glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And verse 13, and he says he went out. This is probably the next day. He went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by and he saw Levi. Levi is Matthew. 
the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. So he's a tax collector. And he said to the to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table. He went to he and his disciples went to Matthew's home. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his home. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with him or with Jesus and his disciples. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many of them and they were following him. And the scribes, the religious leaders of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax what a terrible thing, eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they said to the disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And notice Jesus' response. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician. Healthy people don't need a doctor, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Several years ago, there was a poll taken of 8,000 laypersons in a variety of churches and denominations. And the poll revealed something that a lot of people in churches don't understand. The poll revealed that 70 to 90% of the people who are in these churches are there because of the influence of friends or family. In other words, the most effective evangelism is friendship evangelism. 70 to 90% of people who are in churches are there because of a friend or family member. Now, this would lead to some serious questions. We should ask ourselves some very serious questions. We should ask ourselves, can we really expect people around us to respond to the gospel if we keep them at arm's length? We should ask ourselves, do we expect life-changing results when we maintain only a casual relationship with unbelievers? I'm not saying they should be your best friends. But we got to have more than just a casual relationship we should ask ourselves, are we willing to go to the trouble of really being a friend to unbelievers? We should ask ourselves, are we spending so much time with Christian friends that we have no time for unbelievers? Now, spending time with Christian friends is very important. Fellowship is very important in the church. But we also need to make sure that we are spending adequate time building relationship with unbelievers in our community. Some of us uh, had to really go out of our ways to do this. I know when I was serving full time as a pastor, uh, I had to go out of my way to develop relationship with unbelievers because uh, I was around Christians all the time. That, that was my work. That's what I did. I was around Christians all the time. That's one of the reasons years ago I joined the health club, just to be around unbelievers. 
and develop some relationship with him. Now, why is it that more Christians, why is it that more Christians are not friends with unbelievers? They're not developing a certain relationship with them. Well, it's because many Christians have a very negative attitude. Things that unbelievers do offend them. Things they say, things they believe in, their lifestyle is offensive to them as Christians. Let me remind you of two things that will help you in your attitude toward unbelievers. First of all, unbelievers are not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And we need to keep that in mind. Many times, because they are so offensive in their lifestyle to us, we think they're the enemy. We treat them like they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Who's the enemy? Satan. And he uses them to accomplish his work, just like he used us before we became believers. Second thing we need to remember is this. And I, I've said this before to Christians as they say, I don't understand why they say, use such filthy language or they do this or they do that. The thing we need to remember is this. Don't expect an unbeliever to act like a Christian until they are a Christian. We need to remember they are totally controlled by their sin nature. Just like we were totally controlled by our sin, sin nature before we came to Christ. See, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, when you become a believer, you have a choice. You can let your flesh control you or you can follow the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers don't have that choice. They're totally controlled by their sin nature. So don't expect them to act like Christians until they are Christians. Folk, don't focus on their sin. Focus on Jesus Christ that can help them with their sins. Now, I want us to... Jesus was a friend of sinners, and we must be also, if we're going to pattern our lives after him. I want us to look at this one example of him being a friend to sinners. And I want to point out three particular observations uh, about this story we just read. I'm sure you're probably familiar with this story. The men bought the paralyzed man and couldn't get to him. They tore up the roof and brought him down. Some very significant things happened here. But there are three things, if we're going to be a friend of sinners like Jesus, there are three things from this one example that we must do. Number one, in the first 12 verses, we must focus on their real need. If we're going to be a friend of sinners, and if we're going to win them over for Christ, we must focus on their real need. Now, I want us to look at this uh, particular scene through the eyes of Jesus. Notice on your outline, 
I want us to look at this from the eyes of Jesus. First of all, in the first five verses, Jesus, he looked up. When he looked up, he saw the four men, and he saw their faith. They were concerned about their paralyzed friend. They were deeply concerned about him. They didn't have an indifferent attitude. They believed in the power of Jesus Christ. That's why they went to such lengths to bring him. They believed in the power of Jesus Christ. And they didn't stand around. They took action. When they couldn't get to them, they tore up the roof so they could get their friend to Jesus. And they didn't let obstacles stop them. So when he looked up, he saw the faith of these men who had brought their paralyzed friend. But notice in the latter part of verse 5, when he looked down, he saw something different. He saw not only a paralyzed man, he focused on his real need. He said, your sins are forgiven. He saw his real problem. He focused on his real need, the need for forgiveness from his sin. My friend, listen. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle Jesus ever performs. The greatest miracle Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. He paid for our sins on the cross. It cost him his life. He took the penalty for our sin. And it brings the greatest blessing. So when he looked up, he saw the faith of these men who were concerned about their paralyzed friend and brought him to Jesus. But when he looked down, he saw the real need. And that's the need to be forgiven of his sin. But then look at verses 6 and 7. When he looked around, what did he see? The religious teachers. And they didn't come seeking the truth, they came looking for reasons to criticize him. And, and notice the two questions, they, the two whys they asked. In verse 7, in verse 7, it's, it says, why is he saying these things? Your sins are forgiven. Why is he saying this? And then, did you notice in verse 16, why is he eating with and drinking with tax collectors, sinners? Terrible thing. They didn't come seeking the truth. They came to find ways to criticize him. My friends, listen. A critical spirit is one of the deadliest sins in the church. We must constantly guard against it. Having a critical spirit. Uh, I, I believe some so-called believers have a gift of criticism. They can, they're constantly looking for ways to be critical. Listen, anybody can be critical. That doesn't take any talent. A critical spirit is a deadly sin in the church. I, I've seen churches 
They're the work of years destroyed in a matter of months because of the critical spirit of people. And we should guard against it. So, when he looked up, he saw the faith of these four men who were concerned about his friend. When he looked down, he saw the real need of this man. His sins need to be forgiven. When he looked around, all he saw was these critics who were trying to find something to criticize him. But look at verses 8 through 12. When he looked within, Jesus is God. And so he knew the thoughts of these critics. When he looked it in, he, he saw what these men were saying. And to prove that he had the authority to forgive sin, he healed this paralyzed man instantly. A real friend of sinners. Listen to her carefully. Because we can easily get caught up in this. A real friend of sinners is not just concerned with their temporal needs, but with the most important need they have, and that's to be set free from the power of sin. If we're really going to be a friend to unbelievers in this community, we can't be just concerned about their temporal needs. Now, I'm not saying that's not important, and we need to help people all we can. But we've got to be concerned about their most important need, their most important need to be set free from the power of sin. And so, if we're going to be a friend to sinners like Jesus, we must focus on their real need. Let me give you a second one. And boy, we're still, we fight this all the time, even in our day. If we're going to be a friend of sinners, number two, we must be willing to associate with outcasts. We must be willing to associate with people that other people put down. Without gas. Now, the outcast here, verses 13 and 14, the outcast here was Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector under Herod Anibus. He was hated by the people like other tax collectors. Somebody said all Jewish homes had a sign in their front yard, all dogs and tax collectors keep away. Why do they hate tax collectors? Because the tax collectors would collect more money than Rome required. They give Rome their money, and they collected more money than that, and they were getting rich over the, off the people. But Jesus came to this tax collector and said, follow me. Follow me. And he went to his home. 
And later on, other tax collectors and sinners gathered with them. He was willing to be associated with this tax collector. Because Jesus was a friend of sinners, he went out of his way. He went out of his way to identify with underdogs. Let me give you two examples. In Luke 19, the example of Zacchaeus. Turn your Bibles to Luke 19. I'm sure you're probably familiar with this story. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It says in verse 1, And he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And listen to this. And he was rich. He was very rich. He got rich off the people. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. He was a short man. He couldn't jump up and see over the crowd. So what did he do? He ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. He was seeking to meet Jesus. And he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, he never met this man before. Once again, proving he's God. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must say, the, uh, for today I must stay at your home or your house. And he, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when he saw, saw it, they were all to grumble, saying, Listen to this once again. He was, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Once again, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, listen to this, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. He immediately showed that his salvation was genuine. Why? Because of his changed life. He said, Lord, half my possessions I'll give back to the poor. And if I defraud it anyway, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. It's back to the principle I remind you of, of before. Works are not the basis of salvation, but they are the evidence of salvation. He said, today, salvation has come to your house. If he hadn't been willing to go to his house and been associated with a cheap tax collector... He wouldn't have been saved. And the Son of Man, he says in verse 10, has come to seek and save the Lord. That's why I'm here. That's why we're here. We're not here for fun and game. We're here because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
And now it's our generation. Now it's our turn. Another illustration of this is in John 4, the Samaritan woman. You'll remember Jesus went out of his way to go to Samaria. Samaria. And this woman came to the place where you drew water and he began to talk with her and he asked her for a drink. Now this was outstanding, not only the fact that she was a Samaritan and the Jews hated the Samaritan, but she was a woman. But Jesus went out of his way and this woman was caught up in an immoral lifestyle. Remember Jesus asked her, uh, go call your husband. And she said, I, Lord, I, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right about that. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Remember what she said? Oh, uh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he just told her her whole life and never met her. And this woman was miraculously saved and went and told her friends. And they were saved. If we're going to be a friend of sinners, not only must we focus on the real need, we must be willing to associate with people who others put away, put down. But there's a third thing we must do. And boy, this is all over the church today. If we're going to be a friend of sinners, we must confront the self-righteous. We must confront the self-righteous. Jesus did not expect sinners to come to him. He came to where they were. The religious leaders, though, had a self-righteous attitude. And there are many in the so-called church today who are caught up in a self-righteous attitude. False religion produces a self-righteous attitude. A works-oriented salvation message makes a person a self-righteous in their attitude. It's all over in churches today. They are teaching a false gospel. They think that uh, many people today think that uh, if I'm religious, I'm religious, and at the end of my life, God's going to add up all the good things I do, and God's going to add up all the bad things I do, and I just hope the good things outweigh the bad things. My friend, that is a lie. That is a lie of the devil. That's why I, I believe God, uh, more people are going to go to hell because of false religion than any other thing.
People are works-oriented, and they look down upon others. Remember when the Pharisee and the, uh, the Gentile went to pray, and remember the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And I'm not like even this tax collector over here. And the tax collector says he beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. There are a lot of people that think that way today. They are, they are a self-righteous type of people. And we've got to confront that. If we really care about their life and them knowing the Lord, we've got to confront them about that. I have something that years ago I wrote in the front of my Bible uh, because I thought it was such a significant statement. And it says this, Nobody is so bad they cannot be saved, and nobody is so good they don't need to be saved. And we need to remember that. Self-righteousness will not save you. Only a righteousness that comes from God, comes from Christ, will save you, will make you right before God. Uh, I just thought about this. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 3. Uh, Paul, and I want to look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, Paul, before he, he uh, says this in, in verse 20, he talked about the purpose of the law. What's the purpose of the law? purpose of the law was to show you that you are God's perfect standard in every area of life and to show you that you could not meet God's standard. In other words, the purpose of the law is to show that you are a sinner. And then he says in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, it's not a self-righteousness, it's the righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and even the righteousness of God. How do you get this righteousness? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who are believers. And there is no distinction. Self-righteousness will not save you. Only a righteousness comes from God. See, Jesus did two things for us. First of all, he lived a perfect life. He had perfect righteousness in his life. Secondly, he went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. So when I put my trust in him, when I say, Lord, I put my trust in you and you alone for my salvation, he forgives me of all my sin because he paid for all my sin and he contributes to my life his perfect righteousness so that I'll be justified when I stand before God. That's what genuine salvation is all about. It's not by what we did. 
It's about what he has done. And we're putting our total trust in this. And so if we're going to be a friend of sinners, those who are caught up in self-righteousness, we've got to confront that. We've got to give them the truth. Notice Jesus' response in verse 17. He, he uses illustration. Sick people are the ones who need a doctor. Sick people are the ones who need a doctor. That's why Jesus was called the great physician. Listen to this. I don't know if you ever thought about this. He's the great physician because he comes to us in our need. He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides a complete cure, and he pays the bill. He's the great physician. There are three kinds of sick people. There are three kinds of sick people. First of all, those who do not know about him. They don't know about him. They're sick, and they don't know about him. Secondly, those who know him but refuse to trust him. They're sick. And thirdly, those who will not admit they are sick. That's the self-righteous. They'll not admit that they, they are sick. And so, if we're going to be a friend to sinners, we must focus on their real need. We can help them with temporal needs, but we must focus on their real need. We must be willing to associate ourselves where people who are outcasts in society, who are looked down upon in society, we must be willing to associate ourselves with them. And we must confront the self-righteous because their self-righteousness will condemn them to hell. It will not save them. We must tell them about the true righteousness that comes from God, that they have to admit that they are sick and they need a doctor. This, my friend, this one thing, if we will develop this at our church here, of more and more of us being a friend to sinners, it will revolutionize the ministry of this church. You need to take the time to form a trusting relationship with an unbelieving friend. You need to pray diligently that God will give you the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And when you share the gospel, you need to be clear and complete and leave the results to God. How do we do this? Just one at a time. Develop a friendship. Ask God to give you, win them to Christ. Plug them into the church. Help them to grow. Then you find another. Then another. Then another. And God will bless his church. And don't give up. They don't respond. Don't give up. I want to close by sharing a personal story. 
one of the great uh, men that had the privilege of sitting under at Dallas Seminary was Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks one of the greatest communicators I've ever heard. Taught over 50 years at Dallas Seminary. Went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Howard Hendricks grew up in Philadelphia. His father was a career officer in the Army. Went to the rank of Colonel. He was one of these self-made men. And uh, when Dr. Hanks, uh, at an early age, became a believer, he would try to share with his father, his father, I don't need this, I don't need that. Uh, he was a self-made man. He didn't need it. Dr. Hendricks made a vow to the Lord that he was going to pray for the salvation of his father every day. And for every day, 30 years, he prayed for his father. And one day, his father, still living in Philadelphia, in the 30th year, one day his father was waiting for a bus at this bus stop, and there was a young man there, and they got to talking. And they got on the bus together, and it so happened that uh, this young man lived in the same community, and so every day they would ride the bus together. Well, come to find out, this young man was a pastor of a small church in the area there. And so every day they'd ride the bus together, and he would develop, a, he developed a relationship with his father and, uh, and began to talk to him about the Lord. And three months later, three months later, he won his father to the Lord. After 30 years of praying, his father became a believer. One year later, his father died of cancer. Don't give up. Keep developing the relationship. Keep praying. One unbeliever at a time. Keep remembering what your life was like before you came to Christ. Remember all that the Lord has done for you. Want that for other people. That will be the key to the success of this ministry. Will you do it? Will you do it? Will you be a follower of Jesus and be a friend to sinners? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our salvation. I thank you, Lord, for mine. There's nothing in my life that I ever did that I deserve salvation. I deserve just the opposite. And everybody who has come to Christ realizes it's only the grace of God 
the grace of God, that we have come to know him as our Savior and our Lord. Lord, help us as a church to reach out and be a friend to sinners. Help us to remember what our life was like before we came to Christ and who helped us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live this out in our lives and in the ministry of this church. Thank you for reminding us today how very important this is. And so, Lord, I commit this message to your people, and I pray that we won't be just hearers of the word. I pray that we'll be doers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.